Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to the Story Blender. This is Stephen James, and this is the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And I'm really excited today to invite our guest on. His name is Simon Toyne. He is the best-selling author of the Sanctus Trilogy, which includes Sanctus, the Key, and the Tower. He wrote Sanctus after quitting his job as a TV executive to focus on writing. It was the biggest-selling debut thriller of 2011 in the UK and an international bestseller. His books have been translated into 29 languages and published in over 70 countries. The Searcher began a new series of thrillers featuring enigmatic amnesiac Solomon Creed, a man who knows everything about everything but nothing about himself. It's been optioned by Leonardo DiCaprio's production company for development as a major television series. And the follow-up, The Boy Who Saw, was published in the summer of 2017. So, Simon, thanks for being on. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for that introduction. Yeah, absolutely. So our paths have crossed briefly a couple of times at Thriller Fest, but we've never had the chance to sit down and chat too much. So I was thrilled when uh, you you agreed to join me here here today. And one of the things I really want to talk about is this idea of writing intelligent thrillers. I mean, sometimes people hear the word thriller and they sort of dismiss it and they say, oh, that's genre fiction or something like that. And I don't see thrillers as being easily dismissed. I think that they're powerful and can be can be great storytelling and, and not just cliched. And I think that's what you're starting to be known for is not cliched, but but intelligent thrillers. Uh, well, I'm I'm with you. I um I think that people who try and um, put thrillers down and sort of dismissing them by calling them genre thrillers are kind of missing the point. I think they're looking down the telescope the wrong end, because I think all stories are genre or none of them are. You know, I mean, sure. you, you you can always define anything by one thing, and the idea that you sort of if it's genre, if you can kind of put something in a box, then somehow it diminishes it in some way. I mean, you know, you could say Jane Austen is romantic fiction, and so that's genre. So is that is that rubbish then? Is it the same kind of thing? It's it's odd. Um, I have a theory uh, as well that thrillers were the very first stories. So like when cavemen were gathering around the fire, and uh, and the storytellers of old who always instantly had the best seat by the fire because uh, they were the TV <laughs> of their times. Uh, would tell the stories, and they wouldn't be telling stories about, you know, the weather. They'd be telling stories about how they went hunting mammoth and nearly got killed by saber-toothed tigers, um, because that's the thing that hooks the audience. And uh, these things, these kind of brushes with death, these action stories, um, where humans are tested um, uh, and kind of driven to their their limits um, and have to be resourceful and dig deep into their humanity in order to survive. And survival is the biggest story, isn't it? And so thrill- and thrillers really are about survival. So right. I think thrillers were the first story and continue to be uh, the most, well, thrillers and romance probably, love and death, you know, they're the things. They're the two things that drive us. They're the, they're, and they're the biggest genres, you know, thrillers and romance are the two biggest genres and always have been. Interesting, yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh, when you were talking, I was just thinking about when people watch movies and television, almost almost everything they watch would be labeled genre, like the, the thrillers, the police procedurals, the romance. These are these are what people flock to movies to go see, and then once they get in print, people sort of say, oh, well, that's not literary now, or something like that. It's kind literary, of literary is one of those weird uh, books. Uh, it's, it's one of those weird things where 
you know, you don't sort of, uh, in any other art, artistic form, if you do something that speaks to thousands of people, if it resonates on some level that's like thousands and millions of people like it, then it's seen as great art. Whereas in books, it seems to me that the people who are critiquing these things are uniquely other authors. You know, you don't get film directors critiquing movies, you get film critics. Right. Um, and, you know, you don't get, like, great artists critiquing other art. You get art critics, and, you know, it's a very specific thing. But with books, the people who critique it, the people who write the reviews, the people who are almost kind of the arbiters of taste, the gatekeepers, are generally other authors. And the kind of authors they are are very sort of highbrow, uh, erudite, academic people. And so there's a degree of bitterness, I think, in that the kind of books they write, which they think are very, very clever and redefining the thing and writing the great American novel, don't generally sell in large numbers. Because actually it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of rarefied thing. And I think there's, there's this weird thing of sort of hailing things. I think the people who define literary books as the, as the, uh, the hype, you know, the absolutely the pinnacle of the art form, are re what they're really doing is setting out their own stall. And it's very easy to sneer at books that sell in their millions and go, oh, well, you know, that's for the people who don't really understand great, uh, great literature. Right. I think they're missing the point. You know, I mean, you, Dickens was a commercial writer. Shakespeare was a commercial writer. He wasn't writing because he wanted, you know, people to write dissertations on it or to appeal to some sort of, you know, over-educated critic, critic. Sure. Shakespeare wrote plays because he wanted to fill the theatre. Dickens wrote his stories because he had a magazine and every month he did a, 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 another installment of the story and he wanted people to buy it and he left it with a hook on the end because he wanted them to buy next month's. There is absolutely nothing wrong in going for a big audience and telling a story that appeals to millions of people. And that's a great point. And when I think about thrillers, I just love the adrenaline rush that comes from from a thriller, and um, so I was wondering, when you think about telling stories of survival, telling stories of people who are pushed all the way to the limit and have to rise to the challenge, what are some of the keys that you keep in mind as you're crafting your stories? Well, I think when you write thrillers, as we do, um, you always start off with a what-if. You want to start off from a position of... Um, of kind of uh, relatability. So, you know, you'll have a guy who's very, you know, does a job or a woman who's someone who does, so, who's very, you know, understandable and recognizable as someone who you can relate to in terms of their domestic situation or their emotional situation or whatever. And then what you do is you ask the what if question is like, what if the worst thing happened to them? How would they cope? How would they, you know, if, if their child suddenly disappeared and the police didn't seem to care, what would you what would you do? And that's often the spark of the story. And then you develop that story, and you want to. I mean, it's, we're sort of quite sadistic, really, as writers, because what we do is, <laughs> on the one hand, we have to create characters that you really like, and then on the other hand, you have to put them through hell. <laughs> you have to make their, you know, if you're writing 48 hours in the space of their life it's the worst 48 hours they've ever had and like there's no respite so one bad thing happens after another and just then you think they're out in the woods something out you know they're, they fall down a cliff or something so it's a sort of it's a peculiar sort of strange sadistic job we have as thriller writers um and so you know that's my that's what i bear in mind the whole time is you know is it's a it's the characters first it's the character as far as i'm concerned you know because you know, you can have exciting things happen and people being chased and people shooting at each other and everything. And that in itself feels exciting. But unless you know who the person being shot at is and what's at stake, 
and 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 can relate to them in some way. You know, sort of you care about them. You want them. You want them not to be shot, or you want them to get whatever they want. You want them to get their child back, or whatever. If you don't care about the characters, then it's kind of all pointless anyway. You know, you might as well be watching someone else playing a video game. You know, it looks exciting, but it actually isn't. You don't really feel it. You know, if you're playing a video game, I've got kids and they play these kind of shoot 'em up games and first person things, and they're the most boring things to watch. They're great to play, but they're dull to watch because you just don't care because you just there's nothing at stake. And it's the same in books. You know, you read books and sometimes it sort of looks exciting because there's car chases and things going on and people kicking doors in with guns. But if you don't really care about the characters, if the characters are sort of two dimensional or not very likable. Then, or not very complex, then you just don't care. It's really hard to care about them. Um, and I think, in a sense, you know, the sort of label I get with my books is, is sort of intelligent thrillers. Is that what, the thing I spend most time on is not necessarily the plot twists. It's about complexity of character. It's, it's working on the characters so that they're not just two-dimensional, so that they're complex and not necessarily always likable, because that's what we're all like. You know, we all have right. bad days. We, you know, we're not all perfect or evil. You know, we're, we're degrees of grey, and that's, you know, we live in a, a life in degrees of grey. Uh, and thrillers sort of take us between the deep darks and the bright lights um, on a roller coaster. And But largely, you know, the thing that I absolutely have in the forefront of my mind whenever I'm writing any book is the characters. It's the characters first. I love that comparison between watching someone play a video game and a two-dimensional character. I think that's a great uh, comparison and great analogy because, you know, I read some books and certainly things are happening, but yeah, like you said, if you don't care about the character, you're not going to care about the story and there's no reason to really keep reading it. So as you develop these characters, these complex characters that live in that area of grayness between good and evil, between right and wrong, how do you do that in a way where it draws readers in and doesn't end up, uh, hmm, I don't know, turning them away because the main character has these flaws? Uh, well, I, uh, all of my books so far have been um, third-person, multi-perspective narrative so quite short chapters i mean my background's tv and film and so you know i kind of mine are they're structured a bit like screenplays in that the scenes are very short yeah and they're always from a very specific point of view um so what i do is when i'm i kind of do a mix between outlining and making up as i go along because uh, i like to be surprised by the story and the characters so i don't i don't try and outline too much but i have a degree of outline so i kind of vaguely know which direction i'm going um, and as I'm writing it, and because I do that, I sort of know at least probably what's happening 20 pages further on. I often what I do is I'll write just one character's scenes. So I'll, so I'll write from one point of view, probably for two or three weeks, where I'm just writing that character. Hmm. Because not only does it really make you think deeply, and you know, and you're basically seeing the whole story from that person's point of view. So for the two or three weeks where I'm writing, maybe you know, five or six scenes that just are that character and his journey through that section of the story to me it's all this the whole book is about that character so every so i'm writing it as if that character is the main character they may not be the main character they may be the villain or they may be a bit part of them or whatever but as i'm writing them as far as i'm concerned the whole book is about that person um and then um and then i'll go and you know write another character and intercut those scenes and again i'm writing it absolutely from that person's point of view and the thing is if you're writing when you write your main character, 
you inevitably spend more time with them. You know, if they're sure. if it's a 400-page book and they're on 300 pages of it, you inevitably spend more time with them, and you 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 have more screen time with them effectively, or page time with them. You have to develop more stuff with them. You have to have more backstory. You have to have more things going on, more interaction with the other characters. But I find if I if I devote a sort of similar amount of focus, if not necessarily the same amount of time, to the lesser characters, they feel when you're reading, you know, I, the last thing I want is when you get to a, you know, you turn the page and it's a new chapter and it's from the point of view of a character that you kind of don't really like or you're not that yeah. bothered with. Because the ten, I do it as a reader, you know, there'll be a great character and you're with them for a for a chapter. And then you turn, and then there's the next chapter, and it's from, you know, the chief of police, who's a bit two-dimensional, and, you know, he's just sort of a bit, kind of, a bit stock character. And uh, you immediately, like, almost kind of skim-reading a bit, because you want to get through that, get to the the chapter with the good... I do the same thing, I sure do. So I try and do it so that every chance you come to, you go, oh, great, it's this guy, or oh, brilliant, it's this woman, and where are they going to go next? What what are we going to learn about them next? Which takes time, and it's hard work, which is, you know, my output is a lot slower than a lot of authors, because that's the thing that takes the time, considering, you know, and I often overwrite, my first drafts are really long, you know, they're sort of twice as long as the finished book, uh, because I'm doing a lot of figuring out on the page. Yeah, a lot of backstory, a lot of interaction with the various characters that in a second draft will get absolutely hacked. But I think it's still there somehow, you know, sort of it's kind of ingrained in the DNA of the story. Um, and that it just takes time. That's so that, you know, that's my process. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really cool process. I've never heard anyone it's explain It's a very slow process. <laughs> yeah. Hey, slow is okay. Everything that's worth reading, I think, takes time to write. And, um, you know, I sometimes tell people when... They're looking at my books. How come you don't write more books? And I'm saying, well, what takes you an hour to read takes me about a month to write. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's and the thing. So, yeah. And do you get those things as well where you put out a book and and your fans will literally read it within hours? You know, yeah, it's been exactly. out. Like, and like they've read, it comes out at midnight and they've read it by 8 o'clock that morning. And they're like, loved it. When's the next one? And When's you're the like, next Whoa. one? <laughs> exactly. Just give me a break. <laughs> I'm writing as fast as I can. <laughs> Stepping in and writing one point of view, uh, all of those scenes for a couple of weeks, I think that's brilliant. I love it. That's neat. It's really, it's, it's very useful. You can yeah. travel a lot further, I think, um, in their minds. And um, Well, then what happens is you do that thing, it's like in the downtime when you're not actually sat in front of it writing it. You are thinking about that character all the time. Yeah. You know, and you kind of know where they are in the story. You don't, you don't need to sort of worry too much about what's happening in the story. You just need to think about how that person would react and often i think through that you get interesting reactions because they tend to do things because inevitably you know sort of you start off and you go i've got this story where this happens and i've got this character they find this out they've got to discover this they've got to save someone or raise a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time or whatever it is and you know at the end they're going to do it and you're not quite sure the route there and it's going to be fraught and exciting and all those kind of things right but then when you actually get on the ground and and are walking that story from the beginning chapter to the end lots of things happen and you know it's um and the you know the enjoyment is not you know, people, of course, people read books to get to the end, but the enjoyment is the journey as well. A huge amount of the enjoyment is the journey. And so it's the journey that you take that when you're planning it, you can go, well, of course, this character has to do this and find this out and betray them here or whatever. Yeah. But it's how that happens, I think, that, that I've come, I, I sort of come across interesting, 
and probably less obvious solutions by doing this method, by sort of, you know, just focusing on one character maybe for two or three weeks and really thinking about it to the point where, you, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, I worked in TV and did, I've done bits of drama and various things. And whenever I've written things, I always sort of do a draft which is just kind of telling the story and then A to B and kind of works in terms of plot. And then I look at it again and just think, I've got to give this to an actor and that actor has got to say this and this actor has got to believe it and make this feel real. Hmm. And inevitably at that point you kind of go, it's, yeah, it's not good enough. And you'll, you'll sort of, even if it's like, I always did this, so even if I had like a character, an actor doing one line, I would really think about that line because I would hate to just give it to some some guy or some, you know, actor or actress who's come in for the day to do this one part and, you know, they're probably junior and, you know, they want it for their TV and they're going to give everything to this line. And so if you just sort of go, oh, yeah, all you're doing is opening the door for the main character, I just felt terrible sort of getting to do that. So I'd always really think about what that character is doing. Because, you know, there's that old joke as well about actors, you know, so there's... Uh, you know, you someone you ask an actor who's like a the third Roman centurion on the right in the story of Christ, and you go to the actor, well, what's this story about? And he goes, well, it's about this Roman centurion. You know, and it's like it's always from their point of view. And then the thing is, actually, that's quite a useful thing, because of course, in life, we are all the center of our stories. And right. so, when you are telling a story involving all these people, as far as that person is concerned, even if they appear for like half a page in one chapter, the whole story is about them. And so writing it as if it is, is really useful, I think. And I think the readers pick up on it. I think someone once said that um, the antagonist is always the protagonist of his own story. And he always sees yeah. himself as the main character. And the antagonist doesn't, generally doesn't, you know, most bad guys don't think they're bad. Don't think the they're bad. didn't think they were bad. They thought they were, you know, they were right. <laughs> Everyone thinks they're right. No one goes, I'm the bad guy here. And even if they're aware they're doing bad things, they generally think they're doing them for a good reason, you know, for the greater good. They're, they're making hard decisions, but for the greater good. And so you have to convey that somehow, you know. And, and you know, I think someone else said that the only your story is only as good as your baddie, really. You know, mm. doesn't your hero is important, but not as important as whoever the hero is up against. The baddie is the baddie. And if you think about it, you know, sort of all those great James Bond villains. You know, you remember that, and, Heck, and Hannibal Lecter, and all these, you remember, and, and you know, and Dracula, you remember Dracula rather than Van Helsing. It's just, you know, it's the antagonist, uh, and the complexity of the antagonist, which is, is key to a good story, I think. Yeah, I always think that the measure of the protagonist, or the main character's uh, acumen, or abilities, and so on, is always measured against the the greatness of the forces of antagonism he has to overcome. So if it's just a typical cat burglar who is um, you know, stealing jewelry from the neighborhood, he doesn't have to be very heroic because he just, it's just a normal crime. But if it's the most ruthless killer around or the most clever criminal that anyone has ever seen in that, you know, in that country, then he has to rise to the challenge. And so I think creating those villains that are in a sense bigger than life forces our main characters to rise up and become you know fit for the challenge well exactly i mean ideally you want a, an antagonist who is so obviously you know you want david and goliath you know and you want your antagonist to be goliath to the point where you're looking at him going this guy doesn't stand a chance there's no way he's going to get he's going to beat this person the, the odds are too great in there you know against them but then through the story, you watch how they 
try and fail and then grow and learn and do something else and surprise you and there's twists and everything to the point where ultimately they do prevail and that they, you know that because that really is sort of mirrors all of our struggles you know every individual struggle is is basically a, you know most people's lives no matter how successful you are is mostly built on failure you know you sort of <laughs> what it is you know you it's try true. things and you fail and then you know you sort of you try again and you fail better and you eventually achieve you know every um, i think it was iris murder once said about books a novel. She said, "Every novel is the wreck of a great idea," and I think it's true. <laughs> Every book's a failure because you start off and you have this amazing idea, and you go, "Oh my god, that's great! I so want to read that." And then you start writing it, and then of course, as soon as you actually have to crystallize it into something specific rather than this notion of what this abstract notion of what it could be, it's ne it's never as good. You know, it's compromised. It has to be because you know it has to be whatever 100,000 pages and words long, or and yeah. it has to be delivered in a certain time, and there's only certain things you can do and there's great ideas you have that don't necessarily suit the story so you have to lose them you and, all, and all, inevitably when you finish it as a writer you know you go through all the edit processes and the copy edits and everything by the time you finish all you just hate it you kind of look at it and you go <laughs> oh, this is such a missed opportunity the next one I'll, I'll get that one right um so which is fine which is great i think that's fine as long as, and as long as you as long as you come to terms with that, and I, but I think that's the same in life. I think every, whatever you do, whether you're writing a book or whether you're trying to succeed in business or whether you're trying to have a good relationship with your family or whatever it is, it's like it's it's a struggle. And so that's why I think people like to read thrillers because what it does is it amplifies the day-to-day -day struggle we all have with everything uh, of just you know getting up in the morning and getting through the day and, and yeah. trying to be a good person, all those kind of things. Um, it amplifies it. And so we relate to it because we understand that, but also it kind of shows you, it's like a moral. It sort of shows you how you can overcome. It shows you how through perseverance and strength of character, the, you know, good can prevail. And I think that's just a great thing that we need. I think, you know, people, and that's why people read the books, I think, because it's almost, particularly in an increasingly secular world where, you know, sort of like the belief in other things is not as strong as it was in previous generations. We yeah. still need to believe in something. And I think what books like ours do, thrillers do, is really what it does is enable you to kind of believe in, you know, the sort of in the human spirit, which I think is, you know, is very healthy. Now, your background in television has really given you some insights that have helped your writing. You mentioned writing a bit cinematically, writing shorter uh, really entering the characters. I remember one one thing you mentioned earlier was really making sure that it was realistic and believable for that character to actually do those things. Are there any other tools that you picked up over the years that might be helpful for people who are either maybe screenwriters or novelists to to shape better stories? Um, maybe lessons you picked up, you know, as, as you switched from writing for television to writing for the page. Uh, well, the, the major one, I would say, is just sit down and do it. I mean, the thing is, so I worked for 20 years in television before I started writing, before I became a full-time novelist. Um, and the greatest thing I learned in that is the fact that you can sit down and produce something. It might not be very good, but at least you've got something, you put something down on paper, and then you can make it better. Because uh, I think there's a the real danger with the... Um, 
with either someone starting out trying to write a screenplay or a book or whatever it is, or any creative endeavor, is, the, is, is that thing I was saying, is the fear of failure, of the yeah. fear of actually committing something to, to the page that, will, that is going to be less than great. You, you know, you want to produce something, you want to be Mozart, you know, you want to sort of produce genius straight off the bat with no changes. But the thing is, even Mozart wasn't Mozart. You know, there's, sort of, you know, <laughs> there's lots of stories that um, his wife kind of got rid of all his notebooks so that it looked like he just wrote these things. You know, I mean, actually, oh. they were all Beethoven. Beethoven, you know, famously just sort of got almost to the end of the symphony and then just tore it up and threw it on the fire and said it's all rubbish and started again. I think most of us are Beethoven. Most of us are like that. And the danger is that you sort of don't want to write anything down because you don't want to write, put something down, whatever it is until it's right and you sort of almost try and perfect it in your head before it goes down and that that is that way means you'll never produce anything so working in tv working commercially in a creative industry where you turn up to work on a monday morning like anyone else in any other job and you have to produce something even if you're hungover or tired or don't feel like it or if you write two pages that you know even as you're typing the words that it's direct and you're just going to delete it all immediately just at that thing of being forced to produce, to be creative on demand, is the, was the best thing I learned. Um, and I would say to anyone that you know the thing to do is um, don't wait for inspiration because if you do, you'll just spend your life waiting. It will not happen. You know, you just need to kind of go out looking for inspiration with a club and just you know get it, find it wherever it is, and just you, just grind it out. If that's the thing, you just have to sit down and do it. And one of the ways you can do that is by having either a place or a time, or ideally both, where you sit down every day or every week or whatever you're, you know, if you've got a job and you want to write and you just, you know, you haven't got much time because you're a parent, you've got kids and, you've, you know, your time is, is, is very, you know, we're all time sure. poor, is you go, right, I'm going to set myself two hours a week, you know, something like that, where I'm going to, for those two hours, and that, and that might be, you know, Saturday afternoon between the hours of two and four, I'm going to sit in this chair with my earphones or in or at this table in my favorite cafe or whatever, or on a parched bench um, or on my bed, I'm going to put my earphones on so, I can't, so I'm not distracted by the outside world. I'm going to switch the internet off and I'm going to sit and I'm going to stare at this thing and I'm going to just, all I'm going to do is this for two hours. Yeah. And if you do that, you will produce something. And if you do that regularly, and it's, it's about getting into a routine, and if you get into the routine of just sitting down and forcing yourself to write something, you will produce something. And it actually gets easier, you know, sort of because you, you're sort of removing the choice of yourself of, oh, I'm just going to do this, I'll finish this, you know, I'll just try, I'll tidy the apartment first, or I'll walk the dog, or I'll do all of these things, and then I'll write. And it's like you will never, you know, there's always something else that you can do. Because yeah. writing's hard, you know, and doing yeah. anything creative is hard, is because basically you will fail. Because what you're doing is going to an arena in which you will 95% of the, the time produce something that's not good enough, and then you will have to fix it. You know, and then you will, even in the fixing it, you won't fix it properly and you'll have to fix that. And, you know, you do endless drafts and then you get to the point where you think it's about as fixed as it can be. And that's when you publish it um, or send it to your agent who then tells you other things to fix it or whatever. So I would say from all of my experience in working television, the best thing I've learned is the discipline of just doing, sitting down and doing something. I think it was... Um, H.L. Mencken said famously, said, you know, I only write when I'm inspired, but I see to it that I'm inspired at nine o'clock every Monday morning. Ah, nice, and yeah. And I think that's true. You do. You just, you just, you just sit down and do it. I have a friend in the television industry in Hollywood, and someone had asked him at a Q&A about writer's block. What do you do if you have writer's block? 
And he said, <laughs> yeah, he said in Hollywood, there's a name for writer's block. It's called a pink slip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, like if you, I know I've, I've seen people say, oh, you know, if you're a plumber, you don't get plumber's block. You know, you don't right. go, it's a job. You don't go, oh, do you know, I can't fix that toilet toilet today. I'm, just, it's not, I'm not feeling it. It's like, yeah. just fix it. It's the same. You don't want to do it. You know, it's like a lot of time you don't. I think that it, there's, a, there's a massive difference as well between the aspiring writer who very much has a romantic notion of what being a writer is and, you know, thinks you, you kind of sit in, you know, cafes and or an office with a with light and, you know, the Venetian blinds. It's like a kind of film noir set with light streaming <laughs> in and you kind of stand, you're hammering away on an old typewriter or something and, and, and thinks that that's what it is. And, you know, unless you're suffering or if you're in a garret somewhere then you're not writing properly I think, but again that's just like that's just a cliche I mean it's got there's so little to do with the actual job of being a writer you know you turn up you turn up to work and the great thing about being a writer is you can turn up to work by just opening your laptop and being in your own house in your own space, you don't have to commute yeah. you don't have to go anywhere but also that's the downside as well because you're in your own house and you go oh that's not that just I'll just tidy that or do that or clean the windows or whatever it is and you just and have to yeah. go no you have to treat it like a job and go I mean I have a I have a I work in a cafe around the corner from where I live and I just go there and get a drink and sit down and put the earphones on and work because I like the energy of other people around me because otherwise you know if I sit in my office I just feel too too alone I think it's sure. from years of working in TV and noisy offices I kind of need the noise I feed off the energy but you do whatever works for you if you need absolute silence then go and work in the library if you need noise Go and work. I used to work in the, there's a gym um, I used to go to, and there was um, a little cafe attached, and it was just noisy, and there's people coming in and like you know sweating from just playing tennis, and there's a real energy to it. And I used to just, just sit there for hours and work. You know, whatever works, just work. Just find a place that works for you. Ring fence the time and just do it. And that's the only thing. It won't just happen. You have to make it happen. You have to give yourself permission to take the time out from your busy day and do something and, 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 you know, ascribe a certain degree of value to it of like, this time is valuable and I'm going to use, I'm going to spend this time just on this and I'm going to do it regularly. And then what happens is everyone else around you realizes that that's your time for doing that. And so everything arranges around it and it becomes easier anyway. The I think it does come easier. Or something yeah. just that never works. But I don't think that people um, always understand right away and it takes them, takes them some time, you know, so, so I would have friends who say, well, let's go, um, you know, let's get together or go see a movie or something. I say, well, I'm, I can't because I have to work. And they're like, well, you're a writer. Just take that time off. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, no, know. It's you like, know. You know, it's a notion that it's not really a proper job. <laughs> yeah. or that you sort of just, I don't know, just do it a couple of hours and then sort of wander around staring at views, yeah. looking at for inspiration. Yeah. Now, with kids, too, it's tough, you know, when you have a family at home. You mentioned that you have, you have children, and, um, and sometimes when my kids were younger, I know I had a difficult time because I would write in the basement, and um, they would be like, Daddy, Daddy, and I would come upstairs, and my wife would, you know, say something to me. I'm like, no, don't, don't, I'm in my book, you know, I'm, I'm focused on my book, I can't really talk, and, you know, it was difficult, and finally I just came up with the idea. I said, you know what, when I go downstairs, I'm in surgery. Like, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> I'm just doing surgery on my book. And, you know, you have to treat me as if I was in surgery and I was a doctor. It's just like, 
You can't interrupt. You can't, you know, you, like nobody comes in on a surgeon and says, oh, by the way, on your way home, can you pick up some milk or something like that? <laughs> so, so, you know, I think finding ways to help people understand that we have this strange life and, you know, our friends will understand. They'll, they'll, they'll catch hold and they'll say, okay, yeah, no, that's his life and that's who he is. And, but also equally, I think it's good by doing that as well, by having a routine. Not only do other people sort of then understand that there are times when you're working and unavailable and whatever, but also it's very healthy as well to kind of be not working. Because otherwise, if you don't ring fence some time, you're kind of working all the time. Yeah, that's You know, every moment you go, oh, I'll just do half an hour and you're open. You know, you could be staring at your laptop all day and not actually doing that much. Whereas if you go, right, for the next three hours, all I'm doing is working on the book and nothing else. I'm not doing emails. I'm not doing anything. I'm just working on the book. And when you finish that three hours, then you, you genuinely feel that you, you've got permission to, you know, go to the park with your kids or whatever um, yeah, without feeling guilt, without that horrible thing. Because it's really hard to get that. Everyone struggles with the work-life balance. But when you work at home and you're doing something that to all intents and purposes looks to the casual observer like you're not really doing anything, even though you're deep in your head and kind of, you know, dragging experiences out to try and kind of make this book come alive, it looks to be a casual observer. Like, you're not you're just looking at your laptop, which most people do, you know. It's like a big yeah. phone. Um, so you always have that thing of, like, I think just sort of having to kind of justify it. So if you do lock yourself away and go, this is the time when I'm doing this, and, you know, and then you emerge and you are not change your laptop or whatever. I mean, it doesn't always work. Like when you're deep in a book, you're there but not there, you know, because your mind's still thinking about whatever right. your characters or the next thing you've got to write or something you've just written that you know needs to change. But in the main, you can at least switch off and I think that's really helped me, you know, and spend some time with your kids and, and your wife and, you know, go to the movies and, and just have some downtime because because that helps the work as well. You know, having breaks from it and means that when you come back to it, the focus is more... Um, is, is a, it's a better kind of focus and I think it really can you know if you're thinking about it all the time or just skipping across it it's some, sometimes well also you get bored of it if you're doing it the whole time it just becomes tedious you know so yeah. sort of going in for these intense periods it's like anything you know if you just ate the same food every day it would be, even if it was your favourite to begin with it would rapidly become your least favourite you've got to vary your diet your mental diet as well as uh you know, as well as just sort of, you know, life is, you can't just ignore life because that's the other thing is you are writing about life. But your books will be good because you are you are assimilating on your pages or in the pages of your books a degree of re reality, a verisimilitude that, re that people understand and that, that people can relate to. And if you just let your own life slide because you are in your imagination, then your books will get worse because you won't know what yeah. real life is. Yeah. You won't, you know, and you won't know that thing of going to see the kids play because you've missed it because you're late on a deadline or something. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. Everyone point, struggles yeah. with it. I think, yeah. I think, but I think it's really important. It's all research. Yeah, I was trying to think. Um, there's this old story about an archer and a priest, and the priest said something like he wanted to take some time off, and the archer said, but you're doing God's work, you know, why Why have to take time off? And the archer said, or the priest said, go ahead and pull back your bow. And so he pulls back the bow, and and he says, now don't let go of it. And the archer's holding it, holding it, holding it. The priest says, don't let go. And he's like, but if I just pull my bow back and don't let go of it, then the the uh, bowstring will snap. And the priest said, exactly. And that's why I need to take <laughs> yeah. off. <laughs> so that balance is, is huge. And that's, you know, yeah, it's a balance of, you know, working furiously and, and trying to 
keep the balance in the relationships and living in between drafts and, and capturing hold of the truths of life so that we can, you know, put those on the page and people will relate to them. So, and you've done that some with your new, with your new books, um, with the searcher and now the man, Oh, um, the boy, excuse me, the boy who saw, and, um, now, tell me a little bit about Solomon Creed, and I love this line that he knows everything about everything but nothing about himself. Tell us a little bit about this new series that you're working on. Well, I wanted um, – so I wrote the, my trilogy. Um, was I was working on that, um, and that took about four or five years to write that. Um, and it was actually when I was in the middle of writing the second book of that that I had the idea of this character who – who sort of has in a journey of discovery is trying to find out who he is. And actually, you know, he kind of goes through and, and by saving other people, he ultimately saves himself. That was sort of the one-liner idea I had. You know, yeah. nothing more than that. Didn't know what he was called. Didn't know where he was coming from, where he was going to. Um, and then when I finished the trilogy and I went back through all of my ideas, uh, looking for something... Because as, as, as you know, as all writers, we're all readers first. You know, we've all we all started on this path of being a writer by reading first. Yeah. And 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 whenever I set out to write a book, my you know, I what I really want to do is write a book that a I don't think I've read before, and b that I really want to read. You know, mm. and uh, that's a sort of as good a starting point as any, I think, because you've got to love an idea or be intrigued by an idea to begin with, because. It takes a long time, and you're going to fall out of love with it along the way. And so, yeah. you know, you've got to start off on good terms, really. Um, and so this idea just sort of really spoke to me, not only as a, as a good um, sort of basic, a good framework for a series character. And because I'd really, with the trilogy, I'd really liked writing stand, effectively standalone books, but with characters that went through the story from book to book. And so there's, an, there's like a larger arc of what's going on with them over the trilogy and also an individual one in each book of what happens specifically in that story. I kind of liked that. And also it was, it sort of fitted in with my experience of working on series television. You know, you never do one episode, you do a series of 10 or something. And so yeah. it was, it was kind of, you know, playing to my strengths to a degree. Um, so I was looking for an idea of all of my ideas of something that would span more than one book, you know, whether it's a trilogy or a series or whatever. Um, but also I could see, I could have a character who wasn't rooted to any one place. So I didn't want a, you know, a cop, uh, who has got a job in a certain precinct. And so, you know, even though they have different cases, which would be interesting, the location would remain the same. I wanted them to be able to move around to different places. Um, and they needed a reason for that. And so I thought, well, the best way to do that is to have a character who's utterly rootless. You know, he doesn't know who he's, who he is or where he's from. And so he's trying to find his way back. Um, and then when you start off with that point of view, it's like, well, well, how, how does he not know who he is? And you know, what's his journey and where's he going and how's that going to work? Um, and so I, I had the idea as well is like, you know, cause I love lots of, you know, I, I love reading thrillers and I love all of those great iconic characters. You sort of James Bonds and the Travis McGee's and the, um, and the Jack Reachers and people like that, you know, these characters who are, who are sort of, um, you know, they're kind of mythical almost, you know, they're sort right. of like, they're, they're, they're in the real world, but there's a sort of degree of, um, uh, there's a mythical dimension to them. They're, they're sure. sort of superheroes, but human. You know, that, I liked that whole idea. But also the other thing that occurred to me about these is, like, A, there's loads of them. There's loads of them around, you know, and um, 
And so what was I going to do that was going to add to that genre? Uh, and, would, and also add to it that as a reader, I would respond to and go, oh, I haven't seen that before. And the thing that occurred to me is that all of those characters, all of those heroes, these sort of modern westerns, the central character always has a very distinct skill set and backstory. So like Jack Reacher, for example, we know he's an ex-military police investigator. So, and he's, you know, and he's huge. He's Goliath. He's a man mountain. So right. he's a good fighter. He's really smart. He's got brilliant um, investigative skills. But he's a drifter as well, so he wanders around and goes into situations and, you know, and spots something out of whack and then a story ensues. And that's great. And there's a real uh, joy as a reader of knowing that he's going to go into a situation, uh, you know, a town where he doesn't belong and start asking awkward questions and ultimately, you know, have a fight with a big guy and all that. And that's, you know, I love that as a reader. But as a writer, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to add to that necessarily. So my character is the exact opposite. You know, he has no backstory. He has no skill set. He doesn't know anything about himself. We first meet him in the first book walking down a road in Arizona uh, with no shoes on his feet, a well-cut jacket uh, that's obviously tailor-made for him. And that's the only reason he knows his name, because there's a label inside saying this suit was made for Mr. Solomon Creed. Um, And he's walking towards a town. Um, called Redemption in Arizona, away from a burning plane. He has no memory of being on the plane uh, or whether it's crashing, whether it crashed or whether he was even on it. Um, He looks around and if he looks at the flora and fauna, he knows the... the, the Indian name for it, the Latin name for it, what medicinal properties it has. But if he looks at his own hand, he has no memory. He has he's, where there's a bit in his mind where his his sense of identity, the stories we tell ourselves, which tell us who we are, there is nothing there. It's like it's been surgically removed. Um, and the only thing he can he can remember that's remotely personal is that there's this name of a person, and he has this vague notion that he lives in the town ahead of him, and he's there to save him. So he walks towards the town thinking, if I can find this person and ask him, he'll know and he'll be able to tell me and my mind, my memory will come back, um, only to encounter the fire department coming out because this burning plane he's walking away from has started a wildfire in the desert. Um, and the police, the chief of police says, you know, asks him whether he was on the plane. And he says, oh, no, I think I'm here to save this guy, James Coronado. I think that's why I'm here, to save him. And the, guy, and the chief of police says, well, we buried him this morning. So, you know, so the whole thing of that first book is how do you save a man who's already dead? And, um, and you know, he's the classic thing. He's there and, and uh, you know, he's, he's asking difficult questions and clearly something awry went on with this guy he was supposed to save. And um, and so a whole story spins out of that. And through that, uh, through the, that first book, he discovers things about himself, you know, by... He, like, for example, he has no idea if he can ride a horse. At one point, he has to get away, and at the end, his only option is a horse. He has no idea if he can ride a horse. The only way he can find out is by getting on the horse and seeing if it comes <laughs> back to him, uh, which immediately, as a sort of thriller character, is like puts yourself in jeopardy, and, you know, and you're sort of there, and it's very um, immediate. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, as a reader, that was kind of an interesting character to sort of, you know, follow. And so, so really the reader knows as much about him as, as uh, I do, or as he does himself, because the only things he can remember is the stuff that happens in the pages of those books. Now, other characters in the second book, The Boy Who Saw, come along and, and, and suggest an alternative backstory for him, which may or may not be true, because the guy who tells the story is this psychiatrist who says he was treating him. 
but then you're not quite sure whether he's who he claims to be as well. And yeah. So there's all, you know, this kind of mystery upon mystery. But I loved the idea of having a central character. He's actually very hard to write, it turns out, in the end. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the joy. Uh, yeah. Is having a character who's almost the, the exact opposite of most um, action heroes. In that he has no, he he, he does have a skill set, but he doesn't know what it is. He's having to discover it. So you know, rather than that thing of going, oh, he's good at that. We will see him do that during the course of this book, and there will be a there will be a joy in watching that unfold yeah, and seeing how he's better than. Yeah. In a sense, you know, he's sort of the, the central mystery. There's always the mystery in each book of what's going on in whichever. Uh, situation he finds himself in, but there's also the other going, ongoing mystery of who, he, of who Solomon Creed is, the main character. I heard somebody say one time that there are two types of stories. One, a stranger, or two types of, two, two ways to start a story. One is a stranger comes to town, or two, a man goes on a quest. And it sounds like, in a sense, he does both. He's on a he quest. Does, exactly. That's yeah, it. but he's also I'm like, he's a stranger it. comes to town. <laughs> a stranger comes to town on a quest. That's what mine is. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, it's true, and it's good, and it's great, and it, he, you know, and, it, and because he's sort of, he's quite, he's quite odd. Because again, you know, if you don't know who you are, you, the way you um, interact with the world is different to most people. Because most people know how things work and know how to talk to people and uh, know where they're. You know, the standard thing is, oh, hi, you know, where you from? You know, it's the first question of strangers. <laughs> you know, where you head or where you heading? And it's like he doesn't know. He has no idea. Yeah. He's just there. He's very present, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's sort of, yeah, he's kind of, he's sort of, he's very enigmatic in the truest sense of the word because he doesn't, you know, he's unknowable because he doesn't know himself. It's not like he's keeping anything from anyone. It's like he's got nothing to keep. Um, yeah, it's a know, journey of discovery himself. for him as well as for the readers. And Well, and again, it, goes that point, it speaks to that point I said earlier, but, you know, everyone likes the thrillers because everyone's going on a struggle. And I think also with this, it's like everyone's trying to figure out who they are. So with my character, I've just, rather than made that a, a sort of slightly um, a kind of subconscious thing, it's front and center. You know, we're all trying to figure out who we are, and it changes day by day, and, you know, our, all of our experiences color us and changes and move us in one way or another, and our opinions change as we get older, and our opinions, and as our situations change, you know, we're all trying to figure out who we are on a, on a pretty almost daily basis, hourly basis. Um, and and he is as well, but he's just doing it writ, writ large. I like how your stories tap into sort of these universal quests that we all have. The under the underlying quest, either love or be loved, understand who we are, find meaning or find purpose or become a better person or, or all of this. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that readers are flocking to your books is they're reading them. It's not, it isn't just about action happening and, and mysteries occurring, but it's also it's also about these deep human questions and i think all stories that endure all stories that really matter ask big questions well yeah and also it's you know again going back to being starting off as a reader as a reader you you it's interesting to see someone else explore those same things and maybe come up with different takes on it or or the same take that you have. It's very, something very comforting in seeing that, you know, someone figuring something out and drawing the same conclusions. You know, it just makes you realize you're not alone or fumbling in the dark. So all of those things, I think, are... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, again, I come from commercial television. Um, and in commercial TV, you are writing on coming up, devising programs that will go up the play on prime time. 
uh, so the biggest audience, uh, widest demographic, so it's families watching. It's not just, you know, a certain um, age group or um, gender or whatever. Right. You, know, you are trying to come up with a story or, or a narrative or a subject that appeal, that has broad appeal. Um, and so not only do you have to think about what subjects do everyone uh, like, you know, what what what, re- what resonates with everybody, but also something that is going to play to kids and teenagers, uh, parents and grandparents as well. And it's really hard, you know, and it's, right. it's when you when you find one, it's, you know, it's the mother load because, that, you know, just on a commercial level, it means loads of people will watch your show um, and then it means advertisers will buy lots of advertising around those programs because they're hitting all of their demographics in one hit. Um, and so that's why the big shows, you know, that's why like, you know, the Super Bowl is the biggest thing because it's, the, it's still the one... That halftime thing, you know, with the legendary adverts and the big halftime yeah. show, is still the thing because it's the, about the only time where the entire nation gathers around a TV set at a specific time, not watching it on catch-up because you have to watch a live event live. Yeah. And we'll be sat there and all eyes will be on it. And so you get a guaranteed demographic, which is why it's the most expensive advertising slots, you know, in the year. Yeah. Um, and if you're trying to come up with that, you inevitably are thinking about what universal themes uh, resonate with everybody and, and everyone is thinking about wherever they are in life. And so, and I think that kind of carries through. And so, you know, just as a reader, there are things that interest me. But I think, you know, after 20 years of working on those things and trying to write shows where people will stay with your show and not flip the channel as soon as the, ad, the, the, the commercials come on uh, is really good training for just sort of not only picking the stories, but telling the stories in a certain way. I was it's interesting, Lee Child, you know, Jack Reacher, author, has exactly the same background as me. He's British. He worked in commercial British television for 20 years, wrote his first book when he was 40. Um, and, you know, and, and Jack Reacher was born. And like, it's funny, I, I know Lee a bit. I've met him a few times at these things, through the fest mainly. And um, and it's funny, it's like, you know, I've, we've, I've, we've kind of shared our past history. Um, and um, And I can definitely see in his books that he's doing the same kind of thing. You know, it's that... Mm it's picking a story and telling a story in a certain way and, you know, hooking the reader or pacing it in, in exactly the same way as you do in commercial television, you know, so it's, it's, it's been a very good uh, apprenticeship really for me in that respect. Yeah. And I think this conversation is great because even if people don't have that background, at least they can pick up some of your hints and tricks that you've learned over the years, some of the keys to writing, you know, to um, whether it's tapping into those universal themes or writing, you know, visually and including mystery and, and uh, you know, dimensional characters we want to spend time with. All of those are keys, I think, to great storytelling, no matter if it's uh, television or a novel or maybe even just... It's all, it's all storytelling. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's all storytelling. We respond to good stories. I mean, going back to that, your very first question about a genre, it's like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if there are any genres, there's two. I'm one, there's two genres. There's good stories and bad stories. And that's <laughs> I like it. And there it is. It's true. And it doesn't, I don't care whether it's a romance or whether it's a this or whatever. If it's a good story, it's great. Like I reread, um, over the summer, I read um, The Thornbirds, you know, the Colleen McCulloch book. Uh-huh. And I was dimly aware of it because there was that Richard Chamberlain miniseries in the, and with Barbara Stan- Stanwyck in the 80s. And I remember it being a big thing. And it was just that I was, we were on holiday and the book was there. And I thought, yeah, Thornbirds, you know. And so I just picked it up and started reading. Could not put it down. Absolutely couldn't put it down. And this is 35 years old, this book now. Yeah. And it's, you know, ostensibly it's a love story. 
and today it would be it would be marketed as such, you know. And if you went on Amazon, it would be an epic love story, whatever the subgenre was. But sure. It doesn't matter. It's just a great story. It's a great story. Gone with the Wind is a great love story, but it's a great story. That's the thing. It doesn't matter what genre it is. Because you could also equally, yeah. you could equally put them in the thriller category, and a thriller reader, you know, would pick it up and read it, and it reads like a thriller because there's loads of stuff going on and there's loads of intrigue. It's just a good story. Yeah, people ask me what do I like to read, and that's kind of the that's kind of the answer that I give them. Is I like to read great stories. I don't. I mean, sometimes they're thrillers, sometimes they're not, but. Um... But, uh, yeah, I want stories that really connect with me. So this is a great conversation. And before we close up, I was curious if, there's, if there are any other mistakes or weaknesses that you see in the work of aspiring authors or any last words of advice you'd like to share with our listeners. Um, I think um, the danger with the first-time author, um, or the first-time anyone, is really is because you have a, a kind of degree of lack of confidence in your own work is there's a tendency, and I do it myself in my first draft still, um, is um, is to do too much work. You know, you, you over-describe or you, you say too much what your, the, the character is feeling. You know, you, you kind of, I call it leading the witness, you know, so effectively what, what you do is you, you're writing so much in that the reader almost doesn't have to do anything. And the thing, of course, you know, with any great storytelling is that you bring the reader in. A good storyteller makes the reader do, or the listener or the viewer, do as much work as possible because that means you're engaged with the story. So, for example, like in my first drafts, um, and I know I do it and I know I'll cut it, but I'll over-describe locations, you know, so I will, I'll have a character going into a room and I will, through the course of that scene where he's chatting, describe the room. Um, I used to do it where I'd describe the room first and then have the character come in and I realized how boring that was. So now I do it when the character walks in and then during the course of having a conversation, they'll look around and you'll get a, you know, a look at the room while they're chatting. And, and, and part of that is me grounding myself and, and describing it to myself so I know what the room looks like and what's there and what's interesting. And, you know, and that can be storytelling as well. So, you know, if you're in the office of some grand, grand old family and the wall is covered with portraits, you know, going back 200 years of the great patriarchs of the family, that storytelling, that tells you something about it. Hmm. But if you go into endless detail about the, you know, the whiskers on the man on the third painting, you know, it's sort of, you, that's not telling the story. And I think first-time authors, inevitably, they, they feel that good writing is that sort of, you know, kind of poetic description of stuff. It's like, this I'm really writing now. It's that, you know, it's the old Elmore Leonard thing of like, if it sounds like writing, I'd get rid of it. And I think that's a really good advice. And I think first-time writers, because they're writing, and actually because writing that stuff is fun, you know, it feels, you know, pulling all your vocabulary out of your bag and slapping yeah. it on the page and really, really describing the hell out of something is actually quite fun, but it's not good storytelling. Mm. It's fun writing, but it's not good storytelling. And, and actually, again, what you're doing is you're basically saying to the reader, I don't care what image you've got in your head. I'm going to absolutely tell you what this looks like. Don't worry about imagining it. I will tell you what it looks like. And that's, that's shutting the reader out, and that's death. What you need to do is just, you know, it's, it's like a good caricaturist who with a, two or three lines can capture a face to the point where you absolutely know that this caricature, this, this little sketch thumbnail drawing of someone, you can see who it is because they've picked the exact things that capture that look. Um, and if you took any one of those lines away, you probably wouldn't tell who it was. So everything is doing something. And that's really good storytelling is where you 
And the thing is, if you look at it abstractly, it's a caricature. It's just a bunch of lines, and it's your, your brain is filling in the picture. Your brain is going, that looks like that person. And good writing is the same. You know, you sort of you, you, you cut away. You get rid of as much as possible. Because the more you cut away, I mean, the trick is knowing what to cut away and what to leave, you know, which one of those fine lines like the caricaturist you need to absolutely frame a situation or a character or, or whatever. Um, and that's, I think, what first-time writers tend to struggle with. You know, they, put, they leave too much in because they're not sure the re- reader's got it. And so, and I think, you know, the, my advice would be just really trust the reader. You know, the re- readers are smart. And they've read lots of stuff, and they understand how it works. And if you're doing your job properly, they will they will describe a much better room than you can ever write. So just give them the framework, and then get out of the way, so that they can engage and they can. You know, it's a it's a contract. You know, telling a story in book form is a contract between the writer and the reader. And if you do too much, then you're dominating and then they're just there's no fun in it for them uh, they need to be a joint partner for them to enjoy it um, and so good writing just lets them in i think yeah trusting the reader that's a great place to close up with well good insight simon it was a great conversation i really enjoyed it where's the best place for people to follow you online or maybe to see when you might be doing appearances in the states um well i i've got a website simontoyne.net there aren't many Simon Toyne so if you generally if you google Simon Toyne T-O-Y-N-E then all of my stuff comes up my Facebook page my Twitter page I'm at Simon Toyne on Twitter if you follow me I will probably follow you back if you message me I will always message you back and it's me <laughs> not anybody else I don't have people um, same with Facebook I've got a Facebook author page um, again if you look up Simon Toyne I'm there if you like my page and uh, say hello, I will always say hello back. Um, I'm on the Amazon store, obviously, um, but yeah, my website is generally the thing. I, I update it uh, when I know what's going on. I'll just put all my appearances and various things up there, but I'll repeat them on Facebook and Twitter. So wherever you follow me, you'll kind of get all the latest and also occasionally amusing cat videos I'll post. <laughs> worth following me just for those. Um, I will share. If something makes me laugh, I generally share it in my various things. Uh, so it's about my, my page is generally 90% stuff like that and maybe 10% book stuff, which I think is probably a good balance. Yeah. Um, good. But yeah, so, so yeah, it's just to, if you Google Simon Toyne, T-O-Y-N-E, then uh, you'll find me. So I was going to ask if people want to jump into your series and they want to read The Boy Who Saw, would you recommend they check out The Searcher first just, uh, it's not. You don't know. I write all my books so that they can be read um, as standalones. Great. So, I mean, if you are a stickler, then yes, start at the Searcher, and then that will be the introduction of Solomon. But you absolutely don't need to to read The Boy Who Saw. So, The Boy Who Saw is the latest book, and it's a you know. So, the, so the first one's set in Arizona. The second one's set in France. So, you know, locationally, the only person who recurs from the first one is, is the central character. Everything, it's all new, so it's not like you're going to have a whole bunch of characters and you won't know who they are. Um, and the trilogy is the same. Weirdly, I had a message today on Facebook from some reader who just happened to get a copy of The Key, which is the, the middle book of the trilogy. Didn't realize it was a trilogy, just read it, really liked it, and then said, and then I got to the end and realized it was book two of the trilogy and whatever. So I sort of said, well, I'm very glad you found me, and also, you know, you can read the first book now as a prequel, and the next book is a sequel, so, you know, which you can go whichever way you like. Uh, so, yeah, there's no, you, you can dive into my books wherever. You know, whichever one's on offer at the moment, I would always say, (laughs) 
being a sort of you know a, a sure. careful reader myself and realizing that if I just you know bought every book I wanted I would be bankrupt. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so go on Amazon, see which one's on offer at the moment. Uh, I've no idea which one because it changes all the time, and maybe start there. That would be my my advice. Excellent. That sounds great. To follow my Twitter feed, you can go to at reader uh, at read Stephen James. Um, and uh, for more information about our guests and other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.